So I just want to um, add my welcome to all of you to this next session with Rich Pearson as the CEO of Headspace. Um, and I want to make sure that this space enables him to really tell his story, because I think that's probably why you're here. And there'll be a chance for some questions and answers at the end. Um, I, I want to maybe just say a few words of introduction first, though. Um, when we watched the animation and listened to Andy's guidance, was there a palpable sense of a change of mode and shift in the room? Yeah. How many people here have got a meditation practice, by the way? Wow. Have a look around, those at the front. Just Sorry, keep your hands up and have a look around. It's interesting, isn't it? It's about half. And people sometimes ask the question, is, is mindfulness a bit of a fad? Is it something that will come and go through contemporary times? Two and a half thousand years ago, um, the Buddha spent some years trying to study his own mind to understand how suffering and distress was created and how a mindfulness training can actually help people to suffer less, to live good lives, to make a difference in the world. And I think the animation we just saw and the practice we just saw, he would have completely resonated with that. There would have been nothing that he saw in that. He would have thought that's alien to what I was doing two and a half thousand years ago. So to speak to this issue of is this a fad, I don't think it is. But I think what it is is a really interesting inquiry of how mindfulness can take its place in the contemporary world to help the dean perhaps to have some practice before he opens the New York Times app and can relate to it in a different way. And I think that's the challenge that Rich and Andy have been engaged with. Think about Headspace, and I, I believe the figure is 42 million people in 190 countries are currently customers of Headspace. 42 million. This is a company that is less than 10 years old. Rich, in the exchange, and I won't break a confidence, just shared his age, and I practically fell off my chair when he told me what his age was. What he and his co-founder, Andy Puddicombe, have achieved in nine years is quite extraordinary. They have probably introduced mindfulness to more people in the West, and I, I, I say this, I think, with quite a lot of consideration than practically anything else in the history of mindfulness coming into the West. That is quite an extraordinary um, achievement. So, as I said, I want to give the floor to Rich. Just a few words of introduction. He is originally from the UK. Um, he started out his life in the advertising world, and he'll say a bit about his story um, in the moment. Um, and he is the um, chief executive officer, has been from, from its foundation uh, of Headspace um, for the last nine years. So... Rich, maybe we could, and we've just spent the last um, hour together uh, getting to know each other, and it's been absolutely delightful um, hour, I, I, I can tell you. So I'm sure you're going to enjoy this a, a great deal. Rich, maybe, I thought it would be interesting for the audience to hear from you a bit of your story. Sure. And just thinking about where many of the people here are at, if yeah. we could break it up into three chapters. Sure. The sort of pre-headspace, yeah. the early days, and then the where you are now. Sure. Well, thank you very much for that incredibly generous introduction. I think, yeah, when we, um, 
So I met Andy in <coughs> late 2008. And at that time, I was, um, I was actually... Uh, I'd just left my job in advertising about a year before. And I think that was a really interesting part of my journey in that I had, on, from, from the outside, a very good job, had all the trappings of a good job, had a good salary, had a <coughs> mortgage, all the things that you think that maybe you want at some point. And um, I've never felt more miserable or alone than I did when... And I got a promotion, I got a big promotion on the Friday and I quit, I quit my job on the Monday. Because the, it was just a real encapsulation, this thing that I always thought I wanted... Um, definitely wasn't the thing that was going to make me happy. And I was getting acupuncture at the time. And my acupuncturist said, have you ever thought about being an acupuncturist? And I was like, no, I've never considered being an acupuncturist. She said, I think you'd be really good. So that's what I did. I went and, um, <laughs> I went and, um, I went and became an acupuncturist for you. So I met Andy while I was still training to be an acupuncturist. And my poor family, I think they genuinely thought I'd, I'd properly gone mad. And I was telling you earlier that they, at that point they did do an intervention. Um, <laughs> and um, I met Andy, and I, I was saying this to William, like, I don't know if anyone relates or has felt like this, but at that moment when I met him, I felt really desperate. Like, I think that sense of, um, of being very lost and not necessarily knowing who I was or what I was about, my identity from my job had kind of left, and... I just felt very, very anxious. The only way I can describe it is acute anxiety. To the point that where I used to present in front of big audiences in my job. It was part of my job. And over time, I was struggling to get on public transport. I was struggling to kind of leave my flat. And this is in a short space of time. It's a space of like 10 months, this kind of erosion happened. So when I met Andy, I had definitely had the gift of desperation. And I didn't know that um, meditation would even be a thing that would work for me or what it, what it was. And we did a skill swap. He said, look, I need some help. He had a clinic. He was teaching people one-on-one -on -one in, in London. He said, look, I can't afford to pay you, but I'll teach you meditation and you can come up with some ideas for my clinic. And I was still training to be an acupuncturist at the time. And, um, and ever since that first, that very first time when he gave me my first kind of meditation session, like I've, I've practiced every single day since. I've never, I've never missed a day. And um, I think... I say that because the only reason I've done that is because I know it works. Like, experientially, I know it, it helped me. And it wasn't like I did it and all of a sudden all my anxiety went away. That definitely wasn't my experience. In fact, it got a lot worse for, for quite a bit. But there was, I felt that it was a, a pathway to have a different relationship with it. And for me, that was very... Um, it, it really drove my curiosity. And that was... So it was a very natural kind of progression. And about six months later... He said, look, you seem to have a lot of ideas. <laughs> why don't we try and do this? Why don't we try and do this thing together? So that was, yeah, that was the, that was the early part of the story. Great, thank you. Can I, can I just ask you, I just because sure. it, caught my, it caught my attention, the gift of desperation. Yeah. Can you just unpack that unpack gift a little that, bit? Yeah. I'm just thinking about the audience. Yeah. I think when stuff's going okay, like what's our motivation to change? I just, I, I'm not sure that when stuff's, when you can kind of handle things, like, I'm not sure that you have that intrinsic motivation to make any change. Um, I think we're very habitual. So, and I don't think any of us like to change, although that's the only certainty in life is that everything will change. Yes. Um, so I think that when you feel like there's nowhere else to go, it kind of narrows your pathway of options. Yes. And I think you can kind of implode or you can kind of double down and, and work out a way 
mm-hmm. out of it. And I think that for me was the, that was, it didn't feel like it at the time. It felt mm-hmm. very desperate. But for me, that was, um, yeah, when I look back at it, I think that was the biggest gift I've ever been given. For and, sure. and you were saying earlier as well that when now you look at the size of the company that you're running yeah. and all the challenges that you've got, and it can feel a bit unreal. You know, yeah. You're on the west coast of America yeah. and there's all of the trappings of being yeah. the CEO of a big company. That gift continues giving because being reminded of it yeah. reminds you of your motivation, your intentionality for doing this work. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I think when I, when I hear from, from members that use our service and they tell me their stories... Often they're different versions, not the same versions as my story, but a moment where they've really struggled and Headspace has helped them. That was how I felt. That's why we created this thing, and that's still going on. And now there's 42 million people that are having okay. various versions of that. So that's definitely still the main driver for sure. So what about the second chapter? This is the uh, you and yeah. Andy have decided. Yeah. Decided what and how did those first well, few months it was, and years look? <coughs> yeah, I was. I was definitely at that point. I was still. Um, pretty manic I would say as a, as, a, as a personality so I just had a lot of ideas and a lot of energy and um, I, the very first idea I said to Andy we should, we should create an app because he was teaching this in a, in a <coughs> clinic and I was like this guy's like an amazing teacher he's explained it to me in a way that I've never understood before it's a shame that he's in a clinic on his own like let's put this on an app and it was late 2008 the app store only launched in 2007 so it's pretty early on <coughs> and Andy was like it's never going to work because traditionally it had always been handed down from teacher to student in a kind of oral lineage. And he said, like, you have to... There's something in the in-person transmission that we just won't get. Um, and I was like, fine. So we did events. So we launched events roughly the similar size to this room. Um, we do them every six weeks. We do them in London. And look, hindsight's no sight. Um, but it was, a, it was a brilliant thing. It was a terrible business and didn't work. Mm-hmm. And um, our poor friends and family who we'd kind of, you know stolen borrowed from um, said look we love you guys you're very well intentioned but we're not giving you any more money um, like you need to go and work out what you're going to do and so it, we had our we basically the if you imagine you get three to four four hundred people in a room I would speak to every single person like what did you like about the event what didn't you like about the event what worked what would you change and I'd write down the notes furiously and we'd get them to fill in cards so we get 400 like feedback cards every session we put on maybe 20 events in that first, that first year and a half. So we had a lot of data. Um, and we had £50,000 um, left. And we knew we weren't going to get any money. So I said, Andy, look, we've got to, we need to put this on an app. So I managed to pull in all my favours from my friends. And like, this is a really incredible part about the Headspace story. And it's not, you know, not a lot of people know it, but all of the original recording was done for free by my friend who just believed in what we were doing. All the animations were done for free because the person believed in what we were doing. All of the digital build for the product was done at a third of the cost and we would pay the other two thirds if the company did well five years down the line. It did do well, so they did well. But there was a huge amount of generosity and just um, willingness to help us. And so we bet the house on the subscription product. We launched it in January 2012 and we convinced the Guardian newspaper to put um, a booklet, a million booklets, on the front of every single Guardian the first weekend in January, which is the biggest um, New Year weekend uh, for New Year's resolutions. <laughs> and it just took off. We, took, I, I, we had this counter on the CMS system, and it would show the subscriptions coming in. And bearing in mind, we just lost money, all our friends and family's money, to, you know, to put a bigger point on it. And we took £32,000 in that first January from subscriptions. And we were like, wow, this, this thing could actually work. The problem was that the site was built on 
it was jerry-rigged on the back of um, another website that was an air conditioning website, a fencing website, <laughs> a heating website. And then it was like, oh my God, we've got thousands of people and this thing's going to crash. So then it was, it was a real scramble to try and work out what we were going to do. Once it started working, it was a nice problem to have, um, but we did have to work it out. And the team was, at that point, was four people. And so it was a really tight, lean team. And we built the, the company from, you know, really money in, money out. Mm-hmm. Um, until about 2013 when we moved to America. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was the kind of... And we hadn't raised an institutional round. We'd bootstrapped it all the way. But Andy and I always felt that that was a place where we could, we could build a big... You know, we could realise the vision mm-hmm. in a bigger way. Mm-hmm. And that was the kind of, I'd say, the, the next part of the, okay. the story after that. That's great. Thank you. <laughs> and there's... This third chapter, yeah. chapter of where you are now. Yeah. If you look at the landscape now yeah. and where you are now and yeah. some of the competitors in this yeah. field, because you, in a way you were, you were pioneering, weren't you? You absolutely were pioneering. But this is a space that's now quite crowded. Yeah, very much um, so. Well, I think, like, so now if you think we... So we moved in March 2013. Mm-hmm. Um, the team was 15 people in London, myself, Andy, and um, one other our first ever intern that joined us is still with the company now. Um, incredible guy called Tom Freeman. First ever job he's ever had. It's, what a wild ride he's been on. Is he and still an intern or is he paid? No, he's now, he's now, we don't, we've never paid him. He's very, he's very passionate about it. He, um, he, uh, he runs all of our, um, he goes on site with businesses for enterprises and does all our launch campaigns. He's incredible. Um, and so that team, we built it we did our first round in 2015. We raised $30 million in, with uh, the churning group. And then we raised another $37 million uh, about a year and a half ago with, with Spectrum. And the company now is, you know, we're well north of a million paid subscribers. There's like 42 million people on the platform. Uh, we're in 350 different companies where we supply headspace to, mm-hmm. to enterprises from Wells Fargo, Unilever. Um, we're the official mental performance partner of Nike and the NBA. Uh, we've got about 250 people. Um, we did north of 100 million in revenue last year. Um, we should double that this year uh, if, if everything goes to plan. Um, we're in five different offices around the world. So it's, it's grown tremendously in, in a short space of time. And we've still maintained all the capital that we raised from the Series A and the Series B. We haven't spent any of that money yet. Uh, we've funded it purely off the balance sheet of the business, which is, you know, very lucky. Um, and we're, we're proud of that. But I think the space, to come back to your final question, I think we've really tried to make sure that authenticity mm-hmm. is a big part of what we do. And you can trace our teachings back two and a half thousand years. Mm-hmm. And that's really important to us. We see that as two and a half thousand years of research and development. And the work that you do, and you, you, know, you know this better than anyone, but now we're starting to prove that it's lasted that test of time because it works. And now we're starting to understand how it works. We're right at the beginning of that. I don't think it's like the first chapter. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we really have spent a lot of time maintaining that authenticity and that trust and then really coupling it with you know, cutting-edge research and science to prove that it works. I think what's happened is... A lot of people looked at the space. Mental health is a huge, huge space, if you look at it. And just the health industry, it's a multi-trillion dollar industry if you added up all of the components Mm -hmm. of it. 
And I think mental health care costs are going to exceed cancer, diabetes and respiratory illness by 2021. So it's a huge problem to try and solve. And there's not enough physical... Um, there's not enough people in the world that can deliver the treatments that we need yeah. at the scale that these problems are happening globally. Mm-hmm. So there's a big problem to solve. I think Headspace can be a, a part of that solution. It's not the solution. Mm-hmm. And I think everyone's attacked it from different, different ways. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of relaxation apps out there, mm-hmm. um, which I think is fine. Um, I just think it's a bit like an aspirin, and you need to keep taking the aspirin. Mm-hmm. And we're interested in prevention. Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's great that people hit us when they're really stressed, like the story I told of my experience, but wouldn't it be amazing if I could learn this when I was seven? Mm-hmm. Wouldn't this be amazing if this was a tool I could have had when I was a teenager? Mm-hmm. Wouldn't this be incredible if I could think about a practice that keeps the, the health of my mind mm-hmm. kind of consistent throughout my life? Mm-hmm. And so that's the, that it, we're really interested in behaviour change. Like how do we change behaviour? It's really hard. Mm-hmm. And I think, um, I think it's worrying, you know, we were talking about, it. I think it's worrying that there's people out there that have done a 10-week mindfulness course and they're a teacher. Mm-hmm. And he's like spent 10 years in the Himalayas training as a Buddhist monk. I'm not sure I mentioned that part of the story. Yeah, he was a, <laughs> sorry, yeah, that was, I always gloss over that. Yeah, he was a, he was a Tibetan Buddhist monk for, and a Theravadan monk for about 10 years. Um, and he's like, I'm still a beginner. Mm-hmm. He's like, I still feel like I'm learning. And I, I think it's, I think this question that we should all ask ourselves is like, who are we going to trust to teach us these things that are going to, with a very sensitive thing, which is our mind, mm-hmm. who do we trust with that? And mm-hmm. so that's why that authenticity and that's why the science for us is incredibly important. Mm-hmm. I, think, I think competition on the whole is a good thing because I think it drives you to, mm-hmm. to be better. But like we were saying, like for us, it's actually made us hold our seat mm-hmm. and not chase after shiny objects and really stick to what we're, we're passionate about and what we believe in which is the things we just discussed. Yeah. Can, I mean, the kind of work that you do, the scale at which you're working, the size of your team, yeah. I imagine words like frantic, busy, driven, these are kind of words that fill this space, not just for your company, but for yeah. this, this whole space. How do you um, ensure that the values of mindfulness, the embodiment of mindfulness is part of a, your life, yeah. but also the fabric of the company. You talked, for example, about having had a mindfulness practice, which has been daily yeah. since you started, and we started the session today with some mindfulness practice. But how do you bring yeah. that into the fabric of, of the company? Well, I think it comes from the leadership, and so I have to hold myself to very high, the highest standards of anyone at the company. Mm-hmm. So I do an hour of practice every single morning, and that's like the bedrock. So I know that I, when I commit to that, I'm committing to my whole team and all our members. So that's like incredibly important. We have a 10 a.m. meditation session every single day that everyone in the company is invited to. Very important that they're not, they're not forced to go to it. It's not a cult. Um, I think, it's, I think it's, that's incredibly important because we've got people that are interested in it, but they're not passionate about it. And I think over time, I hope that they get some benefit from the practice, but you don't have to be <coughs> a, you know, an ardent meditator to, kind of, to work at our company. And then we have a 3 o'clock session. I've actually made it so that no one can book meetings between 10 and half past 10 and three and half past three. And so we say, go for a walk, take a break, do some meditation, whatever is going to help you stay healthy Mm -hmm. and give you a break throughout your day. We try and build that in. Um, We also do retreats. Mm -hmm. So every single person that comes to the company will do a full one day retreat Mm -hmm. um, where we'll take them through the history of meditation, the history of headspace, why it's important. Mm -hmm. Um, And then we, we kind of have different retreats that we do depending on how long you've been at the company so that everyone's got an experience of it. We do um, 
we test all our content and we get the team to do kind of pack reviews, like what they liked, what they didn't like, and we kind of rotate that around the teams. Um, and then our values, like our actual company values are rooted in the practice. Mm -hmm. So the first one is selfless drive, mm -hmm. which is about, we're looking for like we people, not I people. Like, are you driven by something bigger than yourself? We have found in our culture and for building a successful business that people that are, are driven by something bigger than themselves are more creative, they're more innovative, they're better to work with, it's more fun experience. So we're we're desperately looking for folks that are driven. I, my hope is that they're driven by the vision, which is to improve the health and happiness of the world. But it actually can be anything, as long as it's not just yourself. Mm -hmm. But you have to be driven, right? It can't just be, you have to have that altruism, but also that drive, because mm -hmm. we're, we're, we're trying to build a, a successful business. Second one is courageous heart. And in a practice, just to go back to the practice bit, I think that you start meditating to fix something that you want to fix, like anxiety or sleep, whatever it is. Mm -hmm. But our hope is that over time you're doing it for others. That the benefits that you're getting, the people around you are the people that actually get the benefits from it. Mm -hmm. So that's linked to practice. Courageous Heart is about, you know, how do you have the courage to, to challenge people? How do you have the courage to come up with new ideas? How do you have the courage to fail? Mm -hmm. How do you have the courage to give people direct feedback? Mm -hmm. But how do you do it with heart? Mm -hmm. It's kind of this bravery, kindness thing. Mm -hmm. And I think to sit with yourself, the dirty secret in meditation is most people give up because it's really difficult to sit with yourself every single day mm -hmm. and look at all of your imperfections. So most people give up and they say, I haven't got time, it's too hard. But the truth is, it's really difficult to kind of look at yourself. So it takes courage. Yeah. So that's linked to practice. And then the final one is curious mind, mm -hmm. which is, um, you know, how do you bring a sense of curiosity and play to the work that you do? Because the back and forth, you can come up with better ideas than you could ever come up with by yourself. And so I think about those as values in our company and they're high, like they're high order right, like values mm -hmm. and they're definitely um, something that I hope folks strive for, but also knowing that not everyone's gonna live those things all the time. If you were living those things all the time, you would be an enlightened nun or a monk. Mm -hmm. So I don't think that's realistic. Um, but I think even if you can bring in elements of that, I think if you can be focused on others, i.e. we, you can always be kind of brave and kind and you can always be endlessly curious, I think you can solve any problem mm -hmm. uh, with, with other people. And it's really a set of tools to work with others. Mm -hmm. So that's, um, that's how we kind of build it in. And a practice gives you all those things. Beautiful. Thank you. Um, it leads me on to, um, I think I'm going to ask one more question. And then I'm going to open up to see what the audience um, has, has to ask. Um, one of the things that always, you know, this is obviously history and history is a construction, but um, one of the things that was always really, um, I found very humbling about the story of the Buddha is that he was um, working at a time in India when there was abject poverty yeah. and there was a caste system. Yeah. And there was also an issue whereby all of the Brahmins and all of the priests were men, but not women. Yeah. And when he sat under the Bodhi tree and he was looking at his own mind, he could not fail to come to the conclusion that the mind is the mind is the mind. Mm. Whether you are a Dalit or a Brahmin, a man or a woman, the mind is the mind is the mind. And yeah. if you think about that, that was a quite extraordinary if you take it out of its, put it in its historical context, that was a quite extraordinary position to take. And we still live in a world that is quite divided, where there are people who don't have access to the internet, or they don't have access to resources. In terms of headspace, yeah. 
how do you think about issues of access? Yeah. And who are you actually reaching? And how are you doing that in a kind of considered way? Yeah, I think well, there's, there's multiple <coughs> points that. One, you quite right say, you need internet access to get access to Headspace. Mm-hmm. And not everyone in the world has that. But there's much smarter people than ourselves trying to solve that problem. So I'm hoping that that problem will get solved by others over time. I think uh, price is a barrier mm-hmm. for folks. Um, so we do a few things. One... In America, we make it, um, and we're going to roll this out globally, but it's 10 bucks for students, so you can get access to Headspace for $10 a year, which hopefully is affordable for for most people. We make it freely available to teachers, so we've made it available to 400,000 teachers in in America, and we're working with local school districts, the four largest school districts in in America, to kind of test out the efficacy of that as well, uh, and making that freely available. The thinking there that if teachers can get access to it, then they're going to teach the children and that the flow on for the vision is going to, is going to be pretty big. Um, we've also given away about a million subscriptions to, um, to various organisations, be that Oxfam, Red Cross, so they can get free access. So that, that, there's bunch of, that's not the perfect answer for the price question. And also, we also have a free product that you just have to give your email address for, which we take very seriously, but you can't, that's all you need to get access to it. I think there is definitely a language thing. So, you know, we're just in English at the moment. So we're, by the end of this year, we'll be in 25 <coughs> different markets and internationally in multiple languages. So that's going to make access a, a different thing. And we're also testing different voices. Mm-hmm. So at the moment, the English product is just, is just Andy, but we are testing a bunch of different voices so that people can relate to the product in a, in a different way because that's feedback, that's feedback that we get. And then there's things like accessibility. So... How does the product actually work if you're blind? How does it work if you're hard of hearing? Mm-hmm. So they're things that our UX and design team are always trying to work on. Uh, and we actually have part of our OKR system, like our goals uh, system as part of the design team, is around access. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're, they're making that part of the, the, the way that we produce products, which you kind of have to in order for it to, to happen. So I don't think we're... I wouldn't grade us at the top of it, mm-hmm. but we're, we actively think about it all the time. And uh, I think you can always do better. Mm-hmm. I really do believe that. Great. Yeah. Thank you. Just before we open up to questions, anything from your perspective, Rich, you'd feel like be useful to speak to this audience about? Um, no, I just wanted to just briefly talk about the, the healthcare mm-hmm. kind of angle that we didn't touch. But we're, I, think it's pretty, <coughs> I think it's pretty exciting to think about we're trying to get FDA clearance at the moment for, uh, for Headspace against different chronic, chronic diseases. And we've identified about 20 different chronic diseases that, um, that we think that we could have an impact on. And we already know that doctors and um, psychologists and therapists are already recommending Headspace. And I think the, f- and the healthcare system in America, for those who I'm sure you're all aware, is a, a really big problem to try and work out. And so I think the, the willingness of organisations like the FDA, um, like government... Uh, like organisations where they enterprises to kind of be open to this type of mm-hmm. um, intervention, yep. I think is just the, the the sea change, the, mm-hmm. like the the speed at which that's happened. Mm-hmm. I think is really um, is really powerful. And I know there's like lots of entrepreneurs in here, and a social, I met a social entrepreneur earlier. that's on a social entrepreneur. Like I would just love all of us to be thinking about how we solve these real problems. And I think things that seemed impossible before, I think are definitely possible now and so for me when I go and speak at universities wherever they are 
I think the, the drive and the ambition for young people to try and solve these problems, I see it more and more and more. And for me, that's just a really encouraging thing. And I just, I would, I would ask all of us to question, like, if we're going to start something, is it a real problem? And have we got a unique solution for it? Because I think if we can ask that, we can genuinely solve the world's biggest problems. So that would be my, that's my one request, I think. Great. Thank you. And the world is, you know, in the last 50 years, the transformation in some demographics has been extraordinary. And you've spotted one absolutely key one. 50 years ago, heart disease, cancer would have killed people who are now living into their 80s and 90s in the developed and the developing world. Yeah. That means in their 50s, 60s, 70s and 80s, they're living with chronic illnesses, possibly one, possibly two, maybe possibly three. And how do we support those people to live with those chronic illnesses? These are problems that were not problems 50 years ago. And I think that is exactly as you say, identify a tractable problem and then how can we begin to to, to redress those? Exactly. You okay to take some questions? So let's open up to some questions. And I'm, I'm... as we field the questions, I'm going to, if that's okay with you, um, um, we're going to go male, female, and I'm also going to see if I can go um, young and younger uh, <laughs> uh, uh, as, we, <coughs> as we go along. So um, the, 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 the lady at the back in the red top. of skill Um, so I a lot of the times I get asked so do you do therapy or do you do this and I say no I provide education and most of the time (coughs) people say to me well why would anyone come to you when there's nothing wrong and I'm like well most of the time people do wait to get to the point where everything's crumbling apart yeah but my idea with my business is similar to your passion to actually drive and change a world into understanding the value and the benefit of prevention rather than waiting for everything to break down and then repair it. So how do you see us changing this (laughs) mentality of let's wait and break it and cure it after, which is more expensive and damaging than the prevention of it? I, th- I think it's really difficult to change that in, adu- in predetermined behaviours in adults. I think, that's, I think it's just a really hard job. I'm not sure that that's the way. I, I think you can make meaningful impact in those, in those kind of groups. I think the place to start is with children. So when we go into schools, they don't question what meditation is. You actually don't need to do any um, build-up. You just say the exercise and you say, how do you feel? It's like, I feel nice. It's kind of it, like they don't, there's, there's no like, but what is it? And like, what's the cultural heritage of that? And is it spiritual? And you know, all the stuff that we have as adults, as baggage, it's, just, it's not there. So I think if we can build these skills and these toolkits for children and teachers, I, I think it's something that people can draw upon for their whole life. And so I think that that's how we can start to think about prevention differently. I think you have to start when, when in a much younger age group. Uh, I think the prevent, like I would love it if folks were thinking about it as a, a prevention. I think people would think about it as a performance enhancer. 
whether you're kind of in business or in sport, which um, is fine. Um, but I think the prevention in adults is, is tricky. That's my personal point of view. Yeah. Thank you. Okay, of course. Other questions? The gentleman over there in the red jumper. <laughs> Hi, um, I'm David from Oxford Brookes University. It's fantastic to hear your story, and I've just literally just downloaded your app. Um, so, you um, <laughs> so, uh, so, so, so forgive the question because I'm not exploring yeah. it. But the, um, you talked about impact quite a few times. Yeah. And um, do you do you actually measure impact? Do you invite your your users to set goals and then assess? how they're progressing towards those goals. And if you are doing that, yeah. do you use that for your own purposes or yeah. could that be data that you would release for um, scientific or for, you know, for, for exploratory research purposes in, a, in an open fashion? Awesome question. So definitely we'll never sell data. We're never, ever going to sell your data. We're never going to sell advertising. We're never going to do any of that. And it's on video, this, so I'll, I'll be in trouble. Um, so that's, that's for sure. I think we very open when we do science studies. We have 65 studies currently in process. 19 have been published already. Um, and we're very open <coughs> with the participants about what we're doing. You kind of have to be as part of, that, part of that ethics kind of process. So in science, that is a separate thing, and we're, we're open with it. From a product point of view, um, we're... We, and I was saying this to Aaron, we, we think very deeply about personalization and how we use data in a way. I'm very excited about how we can create a personalized journey for you as a new Headspace member. Like, what do you need? And I can create you a journey that's going to help you. My dream is that you can turn up to the product and it's going to give you exactly what you need in that moment. That's the dream. But how do we do that in a way that's not creepy? <laughs> it's hard, right? You know, anyone that's been experiencing these these AI things with Google, and it's like, you have now arrived home. I'm like, why do you, like, you know where I am? Like, it's, it's scary when you get those moments. So we're very sensitive to it, um, and we're kind of tiptoeing into it. <coughs> so we've got about six tests, actually, that are in small cohorts, about 10,000 people at the moment, um, different personalization tests. And one of the measures back is, like, you know, did you find it useful, and was it, would you be prepared to give us more information like this to improve your service and so we're always trying to check back in to see where the line is because i'm not sure that i'm not sure that we quite know where the right line is just generally is it not just we but as a as a world i think it's it's sensitive yeah i'm going to try and follow my algorithm now <laughs> um, I, the 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 woman in the white top <laughs> Thank you for being here today. Uh, I want to go back to phase one of yeah. your conversation and uh, your talk with Andy about how reticent he was to try and put something on an app that feels so personal and yeah. feels like it needs to be done one-to-one. Yeah. -one. I'm curious about the thought process of what kind of questions you asked yourselves and how you managed to do that effectively, if you could elaborate on that. And yeah. then additionally, if there's time, yeah. what other industries or problems really have the opportunity to have that done as well? Um, okay, the first one um, was we got a lot of feedback from folks that couldn't come to the events, saying we can't come to the event, we've heard so many great things, like how can we get access to it? 
So we started sending like MP3s on emails as a test to say, and then getting feedback and like, did you like it? Did you find it useful? Um, and event attendees got access. So we had take 10, take 15, take 20, which was take 10 for, which was 10 minutes for 10 days, 15 minutes, 15 days, and 20 minutes for 20 days. And we got so much kind of positive feedback on it that Andy had a, he, he had confidence. He was like, it's not going to work. And even at that point, he was like, well, and if you know Andy, he's endlessly curious and endlessly open, as you'd hope that he would be. Um, and so he was willing to test it. And so I think we, went, we kind of gradually, and that's how we do a lot of stuff at Headspace. We, try, we have some hypotheses and we try and test them and we try and test into it into a, in a thoughtful way. And so it was a very natural process. And... Um, and when we started to get the feedback from folks, what they were getting from this recorded content, it was just amazing. And a lot of the feedback that we get now is like, it, people say, like, it feels like I've got a friend in my, in my pocket. It's like a friendly guide. And I think in a, in a world where we're in desperate need for like a friendly, non-judgmental voice, I think people really resonate. And I think the fact that it's in your ears and it's an audio experience, I think really, have really connected with people. So that's the first question. The second question, other areas that I think are, um, are kind of ripe for innovation. I, you know, I'm really, I'm fascinated by the, um, by physical spaces. I'm really interested in how high streets are going are gonna to change um, as we shop less and less and what those physical spaces, like I'm, I'm obsessed with the fact that we're spending a lot of time on our own. So teenagers are more anxious, more depressed, spend more time on their own, they're less pregnant, they drink less, they, drink, they take less drugs. All sound like good things, right? But because they're spending a lot of time on their own. And so I think there's a lack of community and connection and I think physical spaces and how we can bring community together, I'm very, I'm obsessed with that as an idea. Um, and I think it's ripe for innovation. So there you go. Out, outside or within Headspace? Uh, is in within the product or outside the product? I mean, I think it's a really interesting point you've made in its own right, but if I can just jump on the back of that sure. question, is that we, we in the Oxford Mindfulness Centres, our, our work has primarily been around face-to-face mindfulness teaching in classes. Yeah. And Headspace has probably driven more people to our doors than anything else right. historically, which is great. But, but they have come to define mindfulness as Andy's voice yeah. in their ears. Yeah. So the idea of it being a community or a, or a collective yeah. enterprise or going on retreats, yeah. that, that feels alien to them. So, yeah. so can, does Headspace have a community angle? Is that something you've thought about? Is that... Yeah, we've got, there's a bunch of stuff coming out in the next, in the next couple of quarters where we're going to test a, a bunch of ideas for that in the product. But I genuinely mean in like physical. No, no, I understand. Yeah. yeah. So, but both. I think yeah. I think we can play a role in that. But I also think there's opportunities in lots of other areas Great. where we can create more human connection. Great. Okay. Yeah. Some more questions. I'm looking for a man in his twenties. <laughs> the young man here in the white. Uh... Just, just, just a second. Um, with teenagers and perhaps the younger generation using kind of social media, um, maybe um, much more than they used to, for example, there have been suggestions that this has um, shortened their attention spans. Yeah. 
would you say that um, teenagers could maybe find it hard to persist <laughs> with an app-like headspace as a result of this? Yeah, I, we've, so we were talking about this earlier, but we've, we've, had, we've had a lot of success with the kind of 5 to 12-year range, actually, and they're different time lengths and different... We deliver it in a different way, and we've spent a lot of time perfecting that experience. I think the teenagers... Um, what we've noticed from the data is they just they're using shorter time lengths than you know ten minutes is a lot, but less than ten minutes is doable. And so, my thing is like, how do we? I, I, little and often, actually, to be honest with you, if you if you did, and Andy says this, um, you know, if you did twenty lots of one minute meditation a day and you created moment, that's, that would actually be incredibly beneficial. Um, maybe potentially more beneficial than doing one solid kind of moment because you can kind of create dots of awareness throughout the day so we we quite like little and often if you can build it multiple times throughout your day so i think there's i think there's ways that we can do it um and i think the animations and visual ways of of kind of presenting the content are, are interesting all things that we're kind of we're, we're testing but it's different it's different for every single age group um and i think we have to tailor our product that's the per that's part of the personalization kind of um, challenge that we have. Yeah. Can I just, because um, Rich gave a, a response earlier about when there were audiences like this, he would go and get feedback from every single person in that audience. And when he was describing his answer, I asked the same question as you uh, earlier when we were having coffee. This is a, a process of years of working with young people to try and understand what works. So it's not like let's try it with 5 to 12-year-olds. The innovation and development, the R&D, I think yeah. you call it in your world, is, is an extraordinarily thoughtful and careful and laboured process. And I think the fruits of that are what Rich has just described. And I think I was enormously impressed by how much care is taken in that kind of R&D work. And I think that's probably a, a large part of the, the recipe for the success, if you like. Yeah, yeah. I think that's fair. Okay, great. The lady at the back there with a hand very uh, straight up. Yes. Uh, thank you for being here. My question is about your transition from the corporate world into entrepreneurship yeah. and identifying the struggles and pain points in your role in advertising and how you identified those and you know, used them to scale such successful solutions. What was that process like? Um, well, I think um, selling deodorant to teenage boys, um, I've worked on the Lynx account, but I think this is karmic payback for all of those terrible... <coughs> um, I, I, I think there's... I learned a lot of skills in doing, like, kind of running that process. And so I, I was working with Unilever as my client. There's, the creative process teaches you a lot, and it's not... A creative process is undefined, uh, and you have to put a process around to get... to Like, you have to create a very tight process to come up with something that's kind of broad and big and that is the magic of the advertising process actually when it's when it's good is a very clear strategic proposition that really narrows your thinking so you can go very broad with your thinking that's a great skill to learn and that definitely taught me that I then ran the new business department at the agency so I was running all the pitches and that taught me about how to go and sell <laughs> and how to kind of get people convince people about an idea which was incredibly important when you're starting a a new business where everyone thinks you've, you've gone slightly insane. And um, the third thing is I, I ran the uh, innovation 
arm there where it was an incubator within the agency where we were coming up with brands from scratch and launching it. <laughs> this is why I burnt out at quite a young age. Um, but I think all of those skills, I didn't know it at the time, but all of those things were incredibly useful for, for Headspace. And especially on the innovation side, because we would look at areas where there was a lot of consumer activity but not, or a, a big consumer seed, but not um, need, but not necessarily a brand that was kind of playing to that audience in a way that they could resonate with. And that, that skill set we looked, you know, that's how we approached meditation. We just looked at how it had been presented. And then we're like, okay, if it's been presented like that and it's only got this big, like, if we presented it like this, who could we appeal to? Because we were interested in all the people that would never, ever consider it. That was the kind of brief. So those, those um, all of that, I wouldn't have been able to do Headspace without, without that. The hindsight's no, no sight, but that, that all helped. I think probably got time time for two more questions. So um, please at the back. I'll come, we're going to do three more questions. Uh, thank you. So uh, my question concerns you made a remark that uh, you'd raised uh, funding externally, but actually the business was being run off your uh, yeah. current revenues in the balance sheet. I'm curious if you could. Uh, Remark upon that situation. I mean, do you do you regret having taken funding and what you had to give up to do that, or if not, I mean, what's the? Is it because you have some giant war chest for big plans in the future? I mean, <laughs> what, <laughs> my evil war chest. I mean, I, I'm genuinely <laughs> yeah. curious, right? Yeah, it's you, a great you, question. You've it's raised a, a lot of money, and it's quite yeah. a decision then to say I'm not going to go out question. and spend it all to expand the business. Yeah, I'm being flippant. Sorry, um, the. So the, the, it's a great question. I think an investment is w about way more than just the cash. And I think if you get a great board member, of which I've been very lucky, I have an incredible non-exec director, Katie Mittick, Ben Spiro from, um, from Spectrum Private Equity, and, and Jesse Jacobs from the Churning Group. And they, they give me diverse thinking and challenge me to be way better than I could ever imagine by myself. And they push me in direction, they ask hard questions, and they challenge us to to run the business in a really thoughtful, long-term way. So the, you can't put a... If you get a good board, and I've got a very... I'm very lucky. I've got, I have a highly functioning board that is productive. Um, and you can't... That's money can't buy stuff. And I would highly recommend anyone that's going to go and raise money. You, when you raise money, you are marrying that person. Don't be under any illusion. You're getting married. So make sure that you like them, because they're not going anywhere. It's actually easier to get out of a marriage than it is an investment. <laughs> so, um, so that's the first thing. I think the second thing is, I think optionality is really important. So take this FDA uh, for an example. Now, that's going to be expensive for us to, to get to the first three disease states. I don't have to go and raise another round. I can just do that, because that's there. So it doesn't... Raising money is time-consuming. So raise money when you don't need to raise money and raise money when you can, when you can get it. And t people have got different theories on this um, and it's, it's very personal. But I think that in order to attract talent as well, it's really, if you want to go and get, you know, these, I've pulled people out of Netflix, out of Facebook, out of Twitter, Google, all these great companies, they're not going to leave those great jobs with a company that's kind of not funded where they're not going to have the security. They've got families, they're going to move cross country. All of these things really matter to make it feel like a solid business. 
uh, and not just a kind of fun idea. So I think, yeah, I think it's been incredibly valuable for us. And I didn't know that the business would scale in quite the way that it has either. Um, so that's, that's how we've kind of approached it. Uh, and the B2B was the same thing. Like it enabled us to, you know, our B2B team's now like 36 people. And we wouldn't have been able to fund that if we didn't have that, that cash. To answer it? Thanks. Of course. Oh, I'm so sorry. Please. Can you hear me? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, you mentioned before that you get a lot of questions on whether um, meditation equals spirituality. Yeah. I'm curious, uh, maybe this is a bit of a non-standard question, but when you started your journey, yeah. I'm curious as to whether there was a spiritual practice that you had that uh, helped you. <coughs> because I find that when you don't know where things are going, sometimes you have to trust on something bigger than yourself. Yeah. And if so, do you have any sort of personal stories that you could share? Yeah, big question. <laughs> wow. Um, right at the end, right for the buzzer. Um, I, I think it's a pretty loaded word, spirituality, I would say. And I think my... my problem with it is it puts off a lot of people and it's not for everyone and I think that's totally right actually and I think um, we really wanted to create something that could be for anyone and there would be no we're trying to demystify it not mystify it more um, and so for us really making sure that headspace was right in the middle of the fairway and could appeal to anyone and if you've got a faith you can still use headspace and have your faith you know, my you know, I'm not religious. My wife is deeply Catholic. She meditates, and she used, that's part of her. You know, she's South American. She uses her faith and the Headspace app. Like, it works for her. Like, she does both, and she manages to, to integrate them. So I think it doesn't matter what your faith is. Like, you can integrate Headspace as part of it or not. So that's the first thing. I think my personal story of it is that it's... It's been through experience of what this practice has given me. And I can't really kind of put it into words. It's very difficult to explain to someone the benefit that it's given me. I can't tell. I, it's, it's something I've lived, and it's so subtle, and it's refined, and it's, it's unique, and it's personal to me, and I, like, I can't really describe it. The thing that, has, that really moves me is that, that these teachings have been preserved for two and a half thousand years from teacher to student through an oral lineage. And I can trace every single person back from Andy all the way through. And the fact that those Tibetan monks and lamas fled Tibet to escape into India, and thousands of them left and only a few hundred survived. And luckily for all of us, we have access to those teachings. Um, and so whether, like, take away the, the religious kind of wrapping around it, I think that's magical. I think that's really beautiful, and I love the fact that it has that heritage and that authenticity, and it's really important to me. Um, but I wouldn't say, like, I'm a religious person, you know? And I, I think these words are very loaded. Uh, but I have, I've got a, a belief in the quality of it. Does that answer it? Okay. I, I'm mindful that... <coughs> Sir, you have the last question. <laughs> 
Hi, I was, um, you mentioned um, trying to tackle a lot of challenges considering um, community spaces, physical community spaces, and trying to reach out to teenagers. Yeah. Um, I work with a lot of teenagers and young people, and I was wondering if you've considered making Headspace an interactive, uh, <coughs> an ex interactive experience rather than something that is simply kind of Andy talking to you, or do you think that would kind of make it uh, kind of move away too much from what it already is? No, I think it's a great question, and we're exploring it. I think the Nike, for, you know, if you've got the Nike running app, you can do Nike kind of guided audio runs with Andy and the head running coach. So it's the head running coach giving you running instructions about how to be a great runner and Andy telling you about how to apply your mind. That's super interesting. Mm -hmm. Bringing different experts together to deliver. So, and it's movement. You've got your eyes open. Still mindful in its, in its approach. So I'm really fascinated by how we can bring different experiences like that into the, into the product. That, that's interactive for me. Like I would class that as an interactive experience. I would class the animations as something that's like, it's not interactive, but it's a different way of absorbing information. So I'm, I'm endlessly fascinated by different delivery methods of, this, of these ancient kind of techniques. And I think we haven't really even scratched the surface. So I think it's a great idea. I think there's a bunch of stuff that we can do. Yeah, it's a good one. So I'm going to bring the session to a close and just... Um ask you to um, join me in, in, in thanking Rich for the last hour or so. It, he talked about the values of the organisation. Um, I can remember two of them, which was selfless drive and um, courage, courageous heart. courageous heart. And I think you'll all agree that um, we've seen that embodied in Rich this morning in the way he's spoken and the way he's engaged with us all. And um, if you can just join me in thanking Rich, not just for today, but the extraordinary work he and Andy have done to bring something really important to 42 million people around the world.